Hello and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Miles Evers, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Connecticut. Miles, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here and talk with you. You co-authored an article in the latest issue of International Security on Economic Warfare and Power Transitions with a lot of provocative and policy-relevant ideas, and I'm glad you came on to talk about them. Uh, Before we get into the theory that you're putting forth in the paper, let me uh, get you to expand on this line in the opening paragraph. Quote, Today, great powers fight their battles through global supply chains. What are you saying here? What what do you really mean by this? So, um, you know, economic statecraft has had a bit of resurgence, and you've seen a lot of people discussing new topics like geoeconomics, uh, the tech war, right, with China. Um, And so what we've really seen over the past 20 years was, uh, at least put into sharp relief, has been the rise of these economic battles. And, you know, conventional wisdom was that after the 90s, uh, there was this intense amount of globalization where all these companies were trying to specialize, reduce costs. Um, and so you see what used to be very vertically integrated production networks within companies, you know, Ford doing everything that uh, manufacturing design all within house uh, actually gets spread across the world. Uh, so different stages of production start to get spread out. Uh, where you have one country or one company within a country specializing in one particular part of production, say uh, research or uh, uh, assembly, uh, and they just outsource it outwards, right? They outsource it to whoever is is the lowest cost. And so what we've really seen has been the rise of these intense production networks, these really dense networks, uh, these global supply chains. And it's really increased the amount of economic interdependence between countries. And a lot of scholars have started to look at, you know, how can these uh, new forms, these new networks actually affect great power relations uh, and international security. And the conventional wisdom was they're good for security, right? Economic interdependence promotes peace. It's great. It's flattening the world. Um, But then others started to push back on that. Uh, And work by Henry Farrell and Abe Newman said that actually these networks are highly asymmetric, that they are not these flattening networks that we, we've thought about before, but actually they concentrate on key actors and they redistribute power, create new opportunities for coercion. And so in our paper, what we're really focusing on is, is sort of how we see these asymmetric or hierarchical structures creating these new forms of competition. And a lot of that is states are turning towards these economic means, primarily because great power war is really costly to achieve now, primarily when you're dealing with the advent of nuclear weapons, a highly uh, institutionalized international environment. Uh, and so this just makes it much more difficult to have these huge great power wars that we used to have back in the day. Uh, whereas now states are saying, you know what, let's use these economic networks to compete for power. I want to ask a question about that sort of academic debate that you referenced there on economic interdependence. Because, yeah, as I mean, I am persuaded by a lot of that work that interdependence not only raises the cost of conquest in some ways, but creates increasing disincentives for war because peace brings the promise of future economic gains. Basically, the idea is that economic interdependence is generally pacifying, but you argue that 
it can also intensify rather than reduce competition during a, a, a power transition. And yet you claim that today great powers fight economic battles without gun smoke. So I kind of want to pin you down here. Is it pacifying or does it intensify conflict or is it both? Or are there other reasons that states are resorting to economic warfare rather than military means? Yeah, this is something that is, you know, admittedly a bit of the tension in the peace that we have, right? Is on uh, one hand, we are saying that states are resorting to these economic means. Um, and this is for a variety of reasons that have been discussed before, uh, one of which being the increasing costs of great power war. But then, as you mentioned in the conclusion, we, we suggest that actually the dynamics of these global supply chains can actually sort of accelerate or uh, incentivize competition. I think for us, on the whole, we're not, we're not saying that uh, economic interdependence is going to lead to a kinetic war uh, with guns and bombs. Uh, we think that's certainly possible. Uh, in the paper, we use the example of World War I uh, to show how you can have high rates of economic interdependence and that can incentivize conflict. Um, but for us, we think it, it can create structural incentives that you know look basically very similar to the logic of preventive wars that we've seen uh, in the past, but now they're occurring through economic means. Um, and it is very possible for these things to escalate to a kinetic war. Uh, so for us, we're almost looking before all of that, right? We're talking about how can these economic networks create the tensions that potentially lead to an actual conflict. Um, but, you know, they're no less consequential for, you know, the survival of a state in our mind. Uh, so for us, you can have these dense economic networks that can create these incentives towards competition and actually increase the likelihood of some sort of economic conflict between states. And that can set the stage for a larger battle. And I'm sure we'll discuss this later. Uh, about sort of uh, how the spread of these networks primarily around information communi communications technology has put Taiwan right at the center, right? And there's a lot of issues there, uh, you, you know, already an incredibly complex issue, but you factor this into the equation and now it's just exacerbating a lot of the tension. We will indeed uh, be getting to that, but um, let's now get to your argument, the, the main argument of the paper. It, it's really about how the dynamics of economic warfare during power transitions affects business state relations and thus the the uh, the power transition itself so i'll just kind of give you the floor here I explain your theory so much of the work uh so power transition theory I'll, I'll start there i think it's best to sort of frame what the existing argument is and then sort of build from there i won't run through the nitty-gritty of it um i'll try to uh you know give the the main points of it. But essentially, power transition theory was this earlier set of theories that focused on how you have rising uh, and a dominant power, uh, and they're basically likely to lead to conflict with one another as they're transitioning in power. Uh, essentially, it views the world as a hierarchy, that at the top of the hierarchy, you have this dominant state, it sets the rules of the international system, uh, it has the largest economy, most of the military power, and then beneath that are a series of middle powers, great powers, and small powers. And one of these great powers is a potential challenger. 
uh, and it's rising in growth. It's experiencing rapid economic growth. Uh, and typically, they have some sort of revisionist aim, some more than others, uh, but they want to rewrite the rules of the international system, so basically continue their growth. Um, and, uh, and so they're essentially rising in power uh, due to uneven uh, rates of growth, and the, the dominant power is declining uh, at that time. And historically, scholars have said that this can lead to major systemic wars. Uh, Graham Allison has his book on, you know, destined for war, where he talks about this as the Thucydides trap, where this creates periods of, uh, of, uh, mutual insecurities, fears, and it can, uh, trigger a preventive war by the dominant state that's declining, that wants to basically act now to preserve its power and prevent the rising state from rising. Um, and like I said, some people thought economic interdependence could pacify these, tendencies. They would look at sort of relations between the United States and Britain. Uh, but then other scholars said, actually, no, economic interdependence can exacerbate these tendencies. And we see that through the scholarship on weaponized interdependence. Um, and a lot of the principal scholarship on economic statecraft has really focused on just state relations. So states do these things. They say, we're going to sanction uh, this other state. Uh, we're going to institute this industrial policy and, you know, firms, we're not going to focus so much on them. We're not going to look at businesses that much. We're just going to assume that they follow uh, the dictates of the government. And my co-author and I look at that and we say, that's actually a bit problematic because when you look at this in practice, businesses don't always do what governments want. They fight back, they push back. Uh, and there's been a lot of wonderful scholarship on this showing how they'll move their investments to third parties. They'll, you know, try to trade through uh, illegal channels, et cetera. And so there's been a rise in scholarship of people looking at, well, business state relations really matter. Much like uh, morale on the battlefield, right? Business state relations can act as a force multiplier uh, in the sense of when you have really close business state relations where businesses and uh, the government have common interests and goals, it's really easy to get businesses to do what you want. So it's very easy to exercise economic statecraft. If you want to sanction the state, your businesses will say no problem and they'll comply with it. But if you have very uh, conflictual, divisive uh, business state relations, that's a force divider. If I'm going to try to sanction a state, but it's against the interests of my businesses, then they're going to resist that. They're going to lobby, they're going to push back, they're going to find loopholes. And so this can make it really, really hard to wage economic statecraft in an effective means. And a lot of people have just assumed, including myself in my own scholarship, that business state relations are primarily a factor of national institutions, that you have liberal states like the UK and the United States that are market driven. And in these states, you have a neat separation of public and private spheres. And the government can't dictate what businesses are going to do. So naturally, you're going to have more conflict between businesses and the government. Whereas in uh, more state capitalist systems, state-driven systems like China, or uh, in the case of uh, Imperial Germany, when we talk about it, uh, where essentially business state relations are neatly uh, cooperative, where they're very tight together, uh, there's a very close, dense uh, personal networks between policymakers and business elites. And so this is really conducive to 
uh, uh, exercising economic statecraft. So there's been great work by Blackwell and Harris on this, um, as well as uh, 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 William Norris, who have looked at sort of these national dynamics that can basically uh, make some states more uh, capable of exer exercising economic statecraft than others. But the issue with this is that we don't live in a world where these networks are, or production networks are basically confined to one state. There's a lot of international dynamics that are going on. Supply chains are a structure in their own right. And so we need to look at how what's happening at the level of the international system is affecting these dynamics within states. So we completely admit that national institutions matter, but we want to look at sort of how does the same things that are going on at the level of the international system, the same things that people like Farrell and Newman talk about, how does that factor in and change when we add in businesses to the equation? And so that's where we're picking up, which is let's look at those structural dynamics, just punch in business systems to the equation and see what that does for us. And what we find is that it actually changes the logic of these theories in pretty profound ways. Um, so we really just start from the same assumptions of power transition theory. You know, you have a dominant state um, and this holds, you know, most of the military and economic power in the world. There's a bunch of other states beneath it. But one of those is a rising challenger. Um, but then at the same time, we introduce this idea of business level hierarchies. And we're bringing this in from work in international political economy, uh, work by uh, Gary Jareffi, who has basically looked at these supply chains and said that, you know, supply chains are actually, they, they're very uh, hierarchical in the sense that when you have a supply chain, Essentially, you have one company that's specializing in research and development, and they're outsourcing that to another company that's basically, they're outsourcing the production of that particular commodity to uh, a manufacturer who probably has subcontractors where they're getting their resources, right? Where they're getting subcomponents, they assemble it all together, they manufacture these things, and then they export it uh, back to, to the original state. And so throughout that process, firms are adding little bits of value onto the product just by, you know, what they're contributing to the manufacturing of it. And that add in value ultimately is the price that we get when we're purchasing a computer at the store. And so what people like Gary Giraffe have done have said, actually, we should look at how firms along the supply chain contribute different levels of value. Uh, that some firms, they specialize in very, very uh, uh, knowledge-intensive activities that are really hard to compete in. Uh, there, aren't a, there isn't a lot of competition in them. And so they can actually contribute a large amount of value to a product. So our iPhones, our computers, most of the value for those things comes from things like who is doing the designing of these computers to research and development. And so we call these high-value businesses. These are businesses that are essentially governing the supply chain. They are uh, uh, managing sort of supplier relationships. They do logistics, financing, they're designing products, and then they're outsourcing everything to low-cost manufacturers. And these are low-value businesses. They specialize in activities that have few barriers uh, to entry, very thin profit margins because uh the costs are very high. They're doing things like raw materials extraction, manufacturing, assembly. Um, and 
And this is just the basic logic that we see of sort of how these supply chains have been structured. Some have uh, uh, likened it to a smile. If you were to imagine it as a curve, at the left end of the curve uh, would be the highest value. This would be the start of a supply chain where you have the design of it. And then as you go along this curve, it declines in value. You get to raw materials extraction, assembly, manufacturing. And then as you're getting further along the supply chain towards distribution, towards basically consumers like us, the value starts to increase because that's where they're you know, sticking their brand on, the, on these products. And this is really important because we basically show that where these high value firms are located is typically within these dominant states. And where these low value businesses are located is typically within these rising powers. And this just makes a lot of sense because high value businesses require knowledge intensive activities. And typically dominant states have a knowledge intensive economy. They've already industrialized. Uh, that is how they generated uh, uh, their position in the international system. Um, and they have a institutional capacity to drive innovation. So we're going to see these businesses really within the, the jurisdiction of these dominant states. And that's really at the heart, in a way, of what the weaponized interdependence literature is talking about, right? Why is it that we see some of these central nodes in these great powers? Well, it's because of how they've risen and where they're located in the international system. Whereas these low-value businesses that are focusing on manufacturing and assembly, those are in those countries that are still industrializing. Those are in the rising powers. Uh, but the issue here is that if a rising power wants to uh, basically get out of this trap of being stuck in this assembly line, stuck in this manufacturing sector, they need to upgrade their economy in some way. That they're rising in power, but it, it reaches a point where they're not uh, gaining as much from their participation in these supply chains. So they eventually want to displace the dominant power. That means they want to start innovating. They want to start doing the research and development. Um, and so we show how actually this can create a lot of tensions. We're basically in a power transition uh, as a dominant state and a rising state are starting to approach each other in power. They can actually start to realize that we need to decouple our economies. For the dominant state, uh, they're growing fearful that this rising state is going to threaten them. Uh, that it's going to uh, essentially try to displace them in power uh, once they lose their position. And so they have incentives to try to decouple this rising power from these global supply chains because they want to stop it from growing. They want to cut it off uh, from any channels of economic growth or uh, a, a potential innovation if it's trying to copy their technology. Whereas a rising state... Uh, also sees this dynamic and they say, you know what, at any time this dominant state might try to attack me, it might try to cut us off to prevent us from growing. So what we should do is start using our resources to invest it in our industrial base, pursue self-sufficiency and keep us from uh, uh, economic coercion by this dominant state. Uh, so this creates this tension where essentially as they're rising in power and approaching parity, uh, essentially, the two states feel inclined to decouple their economies, very much like what we're seeing with the U.S. and China. Uh, one, the United, in this case, the dominant state wants to decouple the economy because they're trying to preserve their position. 
The other is trying to decouple their economy because they're trying to displace <laughs> the dominant state. Uh, but this creates disruptions to supply chains. Uh, businesses don't share the same interests as states. Uh, primarily, they care about profits at the end of the day, whether they're state-owned or um, a market-driven private firm. Um, but the disruption is going to matter based on where they're located. If you're a high-value business that profits a ton from participation in these supply chains, uh, you're going to want to keep business as usual, right? You're already transacting with these low-cost manufacturers. It's great for you. Uh, and you want to extract as much profits as possible. So the idea that you can no longer trade with them or outsource manufacturing and assembly to them is just anathema to your business model, right? It's going to hurt you and mean that you are going to decline in profits. Uh, so naturally, you're going to be resistant to any effort to decouple from these rising powers. Whereas if you're a low-value business, sure, you know, being cut off from these supply chains is going to threaten your business model because you extract low profits from this. But at the same time, you have your state that's offering you subsidies and incentives to move up the supply chain, to displace a company like Apple, right? To essentially start doing the innovating instead of relying on the innovators. And if your government's willing to lower those costs from you and you're looking at it and saying, I could get more profits by doing this, well, you're going to start to push and move to upgrade your position in the supply chain. And this matters. I know it's, it's a lot, but it matters because what it means is that over time, this relationship between businesses and the state grows more conflictual within the dominant state. Businesses in the dominant state, they don't want to engage in any kind of preventive action against the rising power. Whereas businesses in the rising state they start to say, you know what? Yeah, let's up upgrade our economy. Let's displace uh, the dominant state because it's in the profits to do so. And this means that over time, it gets really hard for dominant states to exercise coercion, to control and, and, and uh, the supply chains. Whereas for rising states, it pushes them together, the businesses in the state. And one of the findings that we have is it can potentially uh, not only increase their capacity for economic statecraft, so it makes their industrial development faster, but as a result, it could actually accelerate a power transition. Uh, and that has a lot of really important implications. So that was, that was a bit of a long description, but uh, apologies for that. No, thank you for it. Um, we're going to uh, go about teasing out um, that theory uh, as we move on here, but you're, you're, you're basically arguing that weaponizing global supply chains is self-defeating. There are structural incentives which drive the dominant state to use economic coercion against the rising state, but this worsens domestic business state relations over time and ends up altering supply chain networks in ways that actually accelerate rather than slow China's rise. Do I, do I have that right? Precisely. Yeah. Okay. So let's um, first, you, you, Guys, uh, in the paper, have two case studies to try to illustrate uh, the validity of your theory, and um, you you look at uh, the uh, Anglo-German power transition and the U.S.-China one. Um, let's try to just use the example of China. Um, there's a lot of history to cover here. Take us through 
U.S.-China economic relations. You focus on 1990 to today, and there's a major inflection point around 2010. Just uh, summarize this this history. How have things gone with the U.S.-China economic relationship? <laughs> well, they went from optimistic to pessimistic, um, and you know, I would say uh, I used to be in the optimistic camp. And over time, I've become more pessimistic, and I've tried to understand why that's the case. This is part of the reason for this paper, and I've grown more pessimistic, is what I should say. That that would be the top level summary of everything. But to to just put this in and very briefly, essentially, you know, the U.S. after the Cold War was this dominant power, um, huge economy, massive military power. Um, and China was growing. Uh, and around this time, China did have ambitions to essentially rise in power and to uh, increase its military capacity. But a central aspect of China's rise was the development of these supply chain networks and information community, communications technology, um, where essentially you have um, these uh, 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 fabulous designers that are basically are designing and innovating on uh, semiconductors. And then they would outsource uh, a lot of the manufacturing of these chips to places in Taiwan, as well as into uh, China. Uh, but then that would you know, get packaged up. Uh, these semiconductors would get packaged into uh, cheap electronics in China, uh, like Huawei, or uh, if we're just looking at you know some of the manufacturers of uh, Apple as well, um, but China was really emerging as this sort of manufact this global workshop in a way, the workshop of the world, uh, where it was offering a ton of cheap products and exporting it onto the onto the global stage. And the United States was outsourcing a lot, and we all loved it. We were all getting cheap products; it was good, and everyone was so optimistic and thought, you know, the U.S. and China are having great relations. That you know, if we just increase economic interdependence with China, you know what? They're going to democratize any day now. It's going to happen. Oh, uh, but China was really dominating these low-value segments that we talk about. You know, assembly, uh, manufacturing, but a lot of the innovation, a lot of the research and development that was happening stateside in the United States. Um, so originally, the United States, the National Security Council, just wanted to maintain primacy over China. They said, you know what, let's focus on maintaining our military superiority, uh, innovation, and uh, we'll just have liberal trade with China. We're not too worried about China. They're not going to really stop us at any point in time. We can prevent them from rising as a peer competitor. And the way we do that is we keep running faster, we keep innovating, we keep building up our military capacity, and we'll just be better than China. You know, they, they, this will deter them from trying to do anything in the Asia Pacific. Um, but essentially, over time, uh, this started to change. In 2012, uh, Huawei, a major uh, uh, Chinese uh, telecommunications provider uh, for 5G technology, was essentially trying to expand into the U.S. market. And there was all these concerns about their ties to the Chinese government. And the uh, uh, Congress initiated this investigation into the company and these intelligence reports were coming out and basically show that actually maybe this isn't a good idea, uh, that this company actually has really close ties to the Chinese government, that this could enable espionage, et cetera. And then around 2015, 
Um, you had the announcement of sort of this made in China movement where they want to upgrade China's technological base uh, to develop their own indigenous semiconductor industry. And this became a huge concern uh, within the United States. The fear here was, wait, 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 wait. China is actually going to try to displace us, right? They're investing a, an enormous amount of money. They're violating these World Trade Organization rules. And there actually might be potentially aggressive power. And so what happens after 2015 is that you see a shift where uh, key members of the National Security Council are really concerned about the United States' ability to lead uh, in information communi communications technology, primarily the construction or the design, excuse me, of the semiconductors. And so they say, you know what, we need to take a more aggressive approach to China. Uh, we need to actually cut off uh, uh, their access to our semiconductor designs, in part because they are you know, stealing a lot of that. They're spying on some of these companies, et cetera. We don't want them to copy the designs and build their own industry. So we need to cut them off now so we can stifle their growth. Um, and so it's around this time uh, that you start to see the United States put more export controls on China. Uh, the big ones that we know about are essentially uh, in uh, 2016, uh, where the Department of Commerce uh, added ZTE uh, to its entity list, barring it from purchasing U.S. hardware uh, and software. Uh, they alleged that the company had violated sanctions uh, with Iran, I believe. Um, and then three years later, they added Huawei and you know 100 uh, over 100 subsidiaries to the uh, entity list. And we're basically barring any U.S. company from exporting hardware or software to these companies. And that has just since expanded. We've seen this accelerate uh, under the Biden administration. They have uh, basically retooled their uh, export controls, added new companies to the entity list, barred the exports of really highly advanced semiconductors. Uh, we've seen the CHIPS Act where... There's been a major investment in building an indigenous semiconductor industry for manufacturing and assembly, excuse me, um, to compete with China on this stage. Uh, so within the United States, what I would say is that relations, the tendency or rather the uh, optimism has really been shattered. Where before it was, you know, where we can specialize in different aspects and we can have a peaceful competition, whereas now... There's been a concern that actually uh, China's trying to displace the United States and we need to prevent that as much as possible. You guys write about how U.S.-China decoupling is dividing the world into competing blocks rather than consolidating U.S. power. I'm just wondering if you can expand on that a bit. Is that effect inevitable, you think? Is there even a coherent way to employ a strategy of economic coercion against China that actually does consolidate U.S. power instead of rally a larger coalition against us? This is a major concern for us. Um, so what we're seeing right now essentially is as the United States has taken a more aggressive approach towards China in terms of shoring up um, its own sort of self-sufficiency and the production of these semiconductors, um, it's also looking at other countries like Taiwan, for example, uh, also looking towards uh, Europe, Japan, South Korea, and basically saying to them, um, you know, you can only trade with us. You can only interact. Uh, otherwise, right, we'll sanction you. We'll adopt these secondary sanctions on you. 
And this is putting these other states uh, in a very tight position because on one hand, they make a lot of money from trading with China, right? They recognize there's all these concerns associated with um, uh, national security in these states, but they just make a ton of money because it's a huge market for, for selling these semiconductors. I believe uh, China adopts like 50% or something like that. I, I have to look at the number again. Um, and so this is creating a lot of tensions for these states where essentially they recognize that the U.S. is an ally, but on the other hand, uh, they want their economies to grow, right? So they want to have it both ways to some extent. Sorry to interrupt. It seems like our approach of economic warfare is uh, undermining our own uh, economic health and pushing away allies and potential allies. So I, I would ag agree with that. Um, Seems like a me, solid strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, the takeaway that we have from this essentially is that the U.S. is really focusing on just kind of punching China, right? It's it's really focusing on hurting China. And while there have been efforts towards uh, essentially promoting um through the CHIPS Act, our own industry within the United States uh, for semiconductors. In my opinion, that hasn't been super successful thus far. We can talk about the reasons for that. Um, but we've really been focusing on escalating sanctions, closing loopholes, right? President Biden once likened it to a game of whack-a-mole before he was president. Now he's president and he's engaging in a very similar game of whack-a-mole. Um, but the result of that is we're driving states away. Uh, South Korea and Taiwan, you know, they want to continue trading with uh, some Chinese manufacturers for sure. Um, but at the same time, they recognize that the United States is an important ally, right? So uh, they're trying to decide between these two things. The issue that I think, you know, I, I don't want to speak for my co-author, but for me personally, I find is that we're driving businesses away as well. A lot of American businesses right now are cautioning the Biden administration, lobbying them very hard and saying, essentially, you guys are taking too strong of an approach on here. You need to moderate what you're doing because some of these companies, some American companies have plans to de-Americanize, to move their investments. Uh, they are, some are even deciding that they don't want to have all the strings attached to the CHIPS Act. And so, you know what? They're not even going to apply for subsidies. That instead, what they're going to do is just keep trading uh, like they've always done uh, with China. And so what's going on, like, like you were saying, is essentially we are driving away potentially allies and we are driving away our own businesses potentially. Um, and what that does essentially is accelerate development in China. It's accelerating their development information community communications technology. Uh, it's making them more self-sufficient. It's pushing them to become potentially right a, a, a major challenger to the United States eventually in these technologies, just as these businesses have warned. And China has made incredible advances despite U.S. sanctions. People talk about how China is so far behind the United States, but we should really think about, you know, They've made breakthroughs in uh, advanced chips for artificial intelligence, despite these huge sanctions that are placed against it, against them. 
Uh, so given the circumstances, it's pretty impressive. Uh, and that should be a cause for concern, right? Uh, the fact that they're making these leaps in technology development and restructuring their industries, the fact that they actually have all these startups that are getting tons of money, huge sales, uh, and they're starting to manufacture their own semiconductors. Like Huawei had their own fully produced phone that they that they came out with. You know, it's showing that our policy actually is potentially accelerating what's going on there. And this should lead us to pause that maybe, you know, we should think about how is it that we can compete with them or preserve areas that are of critical importance to us while not accelerating their industry, right? Maybe there's a more even-handed approach to this than just full-on coercion against them. Explain why you think tightening sanctions against China could ignite a military confrontation over Taiwan. Oh, uh, yeah, not an easy question. Um, so we outline essentially two pathways we think that this could potentially occur. Um, and I should say they're by no means destined. We don't actually look at essentially how a, um, how these sort of economic wars could escalate to a shooting war. Of course, one of our case studies does look at that, but it is not, um, it's not our primary concern, but we do think there are pathways by which it could occur, right? And there's been great work by somebody, uh, by Dale Copeland, right, who's looked at how trade expectations can affect propensities for war. And he's done some fantastic work showing that, you know, in these power transitions, uh, you know, he doesn't exclusively look at those, but he does talk about how declining expectations for trade are actually a key predictor of uh, great power conflicts that, if states realize that they're not likely to to gain these things from trade, then what are they going to do? They're going to essentially go to war with one another uh, because they can't get these materials through trade. They start to question each other, et cetera. Um, so Taiwan enters the picture here. You know, there's a lot of issues with respect to the the history of Taiwan, right? Its sovereignty, et cetera. And we can uh, just set that aside from now and just focus exclusively on this its position in global supply chains. So most semiconductors in in the world, and, and excuse me if I haven't fully uh, explained sort of the supply chain for semiconductors, it's, it's pretty complicated, but essentially um, on one hand, you have major companies like Qualcomm in the United States or Intel that design semiconductors, right? These are the little microchips that run anything from your precision guided uh, munitions Right, to essentially your toaster. Uh, they're in everything. And um, essentially Qualcomm and Intel uh, design a lot of these uh, uh, semiconductors and then they outsource the manufacturing of these semiconductors to this company in Taiwan called TSMC. Uh, and TSMC manufactures most of the world's semiconductors. They are like the hub of semiconductor manufacturing Right, they have a lot of the tools to do it. They have a lot of uh, 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 the the labor. Uh, they are also, uh, of course, surrounded by water. You need a lot of water uh, when you're constructing these semiconductors. So it's a very suitable position uh, to basically manufacture these semiconductors. And then they basically uh, these semiconductors then go to companies in China that assemble them into products and then export them. And so the fear here is that TSMC is a hub. 
It's this major location for manufacturing semiconductors. And the United States has essentially said to the company, look, you can't trade with China so long as you're purchasing our products. Now, initially, uh, when we had the ban, there were some loopholes associated with this. But then the United States sort of closed this and said, look, you can no longer with trade uh, with China that any of our products, whether or not it's 25%, right, or, or, or more, right, that are sourced in the United States. So, so that could be U.S. designed chips, right? Those are not allowed in some way to uh, get exported or traded with China. So that means that TSMC can no longer trade with China. We don't want it happening, right? We will sanction you. We will cut off trade with you. It's barred. We'll penalize you, et cetera, if you continue to do that. And so the concern here is that this makes Taiwan even more of a flashpoint. Uh, and so we outlined essentially two ways that this could potentially lead to um, a conflict. So if the United States were to, let's say, place even stronger sanctions than it already has on China, on its semiconductor industry, if it hurts too much, if it basically devastates their industry, it's possible that they see no other that they start looking at basically the last means uh, that they have, right? That the most extreme measures, the things that they wouldn't have thought of before. And they might actually look uh, at TSMC and say, you know what? Our manufacturers are struggling against these stronger sanctions. And so actually what we should do is we should seize the company. That we should seize this uh, this company, this, this center of manufacturing so that we can just immediately become self-sufficient. Uh, so the concern here, essentially, is that if stronger sanctions are exacted, that China, uh, in you know desperation, uh, might gamble on taking Taiwan to ensure its uh, security, particularly if the businesses uh, within China need it to survive. If they need the manufacturing, uh, the factories, the manpower, the labor, et cetera, uh, that they might actually seize it right, to maintain their their economic growth. But the concern here then is that, China, is that the United States and U.S. policymakers have said that if China tries to seize TSMC, that they'll destroy it. They will basically just fire missiles and destroy it in some way, right? They'll sabotage it. And so the issue here is that this can, you know, this is a scenario where basically this company becomes a flashpoint where now you have it where China is threatening Right, their own uh, economic planning agencies, members of that uh, Chinese economic plan planning agency, have said that they might seize the company if these sanctions are exacted. Right, and the U.S. in turn saying, "If you do that, we will destroy this." Well, now this starts to become a real possibility, um, and our concern is that if businesses are highly resistant and lobbying, if U.S. businesses are so resistant to government policy, that Chinese leadership might say, "You know what?" The U.S. would never start this war because businesses are going to push back on them from doing so because it would be too devastating to the world economy. NSC uh, estimates say that you know uh, uh, destruction of TSMC or Chinese seizure of the company would cost over one trillion dollars to the world economy. It's wild, and so Chinese leaders might think that American businesses are too profit hungry uh, and they'll hold back the government, right? And so this could reduce the credibility of U.S. threats uh, to do so. And then on the other hand, uh, close relations between Chinese businesses 
and Chinese leadership could actually push Chinese leadership to be more sensitive to uh, uh, the well-being of Chinese businesses because they're hearing in their ear, right? Uh, these businesses are struggling to survive. Uh, so our concern is that pushing on stronger sanctions is, and you add in these business level dynamics, it actually increases the likelihood uh, that there could be a shooting war or really uh, intense military uh, competition around Taiwan, particularly TSMC. The, this is depressing. Uh, this, it's times like these when I am, I, I consider it unfair that economics got the name, uh, the dismal science. But uh, I mean, because there are structural incentives which both states and businesses uh, tend to follow here, and they're perverse incentives, really, because at least from our perspective, it ends up resulting in precisely the thing we're trying to prevent by employing this strategy. Uh, businesses want freer trade and profits. Yeah. The state wants security and trade protections. Yep. And for me, the question arises, which of these is actually more aligned with the public interest? Um, I mean, it, there are, it, it somewhat depends on how you view the threat from China, but um, the state says private industry is translating into national security threats. So in the name of the public interest, we've got to decouple from uh, the Chinese economy in this or that industry, which then disrupts global supply chains in the interest of China, all while making an utterly devastating military conflict more likely, which seems to me to undermine the public interest. Tell me that the problem is not as circularly stupid as this. You know, <laughs> I feel like I've sighed a lot throughout uh, this podcast. And it's because I, I'm someone who, um, you know, day to day, I'm an optimist. Academically, I tend to be uh, a bit more of a pessimist. And I have gone through and tried to think about okay, what is the ways that we can avoid these scenarios? What is the pathways out of this? And, you know, I, I don't think of theories as straitjackets. I think of them as ways of us understanding the world. Um, but the story we paint is very pessimistic. It's not one that makes us feel good. And to be quite honest, it's a tragic story, right? Which is very realist in that regard, right? Um, and, and that it is that, you know, the United States is trying to protect its interests. China's trying to protect their interests. But what they're doing is actually making the very thing that they're trying to avoid more likely. Um, and, you know, that is very much in the theme of a lot of early power transition theory work, right? That states are really just out here uh, trying to maintain their national security. But in doing so, they're threatening the security of other states and it increases tensions. And for us, the dynamics with businesses, because their interests aren't the same as the state. And to be quite honest, the, the interest of, of businesses isn't the public interest. Their interest is profits. It's, you know, their shareholders. Uh, and so naturally we think that that complicates things a lot. Uh, and those tragic elements that are inherent in an anarchic international system, this drive for profits and profit maximization can actually worsen it, right? And 
So for us, it is kind of that stupid, right? Um, that, you know, this push to basically hurt China because it's in the public interest to do so. Uh, but in doing so, it's actually hurting the public interest, right? Not necessarily the interest of businesses. Yeah, that's essentially what's going on. And the irony here is that the private businesses who are really just looking out for their self-interest, um, you know, they might have, interestingly enough, at least in the United States, right, their interest actually might be more aligned with the interests of everyday Americans. I think a lot of Americans are concerned about China's rise. They're concerned, right, about, you know, say spying, et cetera. Uh, but I do think at the same time, everyday Americans don't want a war in Taiwan. I don't think they want to go to war with China. Um, I think they like cheap products that they can buy at, you know, Target and Walmart. Um, so I do think that the current policy that has been instituted isn't yet, I, I would say it's not completely serving, say, the public interest in that way, if that's how we were to define it. Um, but I think there are ways to potentially tweak it, right, to make it align a bit better. I, I don't want to say that I'm completely some kind of China dove who is says that, you know, the U.S. should just freely trade with China without concern. Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. But I just think that the current policy has been self-defeating. Miles Evers, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. 